So how are you, man? I am doing great. Um, yeah, I gotta say, I'm actually I'm doing better in the last few days than I have been for uh, for a few weeks before that. So um, I'm nearing the end of my this project that's sort of kicking my ass, and if you don't see mind, a light at the end ask, of the tunnel. If you don't mind, I'm asking what uh, what what are you working on? Uh, so I've been doing this. For the last year, I've been working on this thing. Uh, it's called Hindsight 2020, and it's basically looking at the last, I guess, we're like 15 years or so um, of kind of like a, a history of the Internet told through the Internet documentaries that have become so foundational. So, uh, for example, there was a, an article I believe from 2006 or seven, where Vanity Fair says is talking about the the film Loose Change, that 9/11 documentary, oh, and they say, "Hey, this might be the first internet blockbuster." It's just you know, it's sort of like a think piece, um, right. and I'm just sort of looking at it now. In you know, I guess I started this uh, in 2019, 2018, but just sort of looking at it like, okay, taking that idea. What does it say that the first real thing that comes out of the internet as far as um, an, an art form that, that develops are these documentary films, um, particularly with a conspiracy bent and how that has informed everything that has come after it and sort of putting it into context um, and sort of seeing if we use that as our trajectory, what does that tell us about where we are, what have we learned, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, I've been following, yeah, your your series. I was talking to Christopher Knowles, and and he's he, I mean, I I listen to your podcast and and various things, but I was talking to Christopher Knowles, and he said you got to check out Alan's uh, new series, and that I've just been blown away, man. So kudos to you. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's really exciting to hear, and I, you just to say you said, you said you're familiar with my stuff, and I appreciate that, and I'm. Uh, unfortunately, I, I feel terrible that I'm not as familiar, but that's why I wanted to reach out and do this call. Sort of when you sent it to me, I'm like, well, I can start digging into your material, but I just know right away that I'm like, well, there's so much overlap. Um, there is. I think there is. Yeah. And I've, and I've, I've kind of long known that. Um, and I, I don't uh, listen to too many podcasts. I don't miss many of, of you, what you guys put out. I listen to Christopher Knowles and, and a few others, but but there is a lot of overlap. You're correct, and I, I know. Uh, now you started. Like, are you in New York, by the way? Is that where you're at? I'm not currently. No, I mean that's okay. where I was born and raised in New York, and I left in 2013. Um, okay. Yeah, my uh, my partner at the time, who was not from New York. Uh, she she had agreed to you know, sort of move there and stay there with me, and we she, we were there for five years together. And then she was like, "Okay, I really have to get out of New York." I had never lived anywhere else, you know. And I was like, "Well, it's all kind of the same to me. It's all new." And you know, uh, start I don't know starting at New York. I don't mean that in a pompous way, but it's like I don't know wh- where do you go from there, right? That's a space that people usually go to. <laughs> Right. So I'm like, just let's let's figure it out. And I've been for the last seven years been kinda dicking around the country finding a place, <laughs> trying to find a place that I fit in. So Yeah. Well have you found one? Um I think so. Uh at least for 
for a short while. I've been living in Richmond, Virginia for the last, um, oh, four years. And uh, I have to say it's, it's a great town, uh, all things considered. I, I've really enjoyed this place. Um, I don't know that it's a permanent place, but it's, uh, it's been really good to me. I haven't been to Virginia, but I but I hear I've heard good things. Um, May I ask where you are? Yeah, I split time. Uh, actually, my wife and kids don't don't like that we we split time, but um, they mostly stay in Arizona, where I'm from, and that's uh, that's where I'm at right now. I'm I was kind of I was born in Germany, but I we ended up in Arizona at a pretty young age, and but I uh, of course you know the the business being what it it is at least up to this point, I think it's all changing right now in a big, big way as Hollywood burns, you know, but, um, I've had to bounce back and forth between here in LA my whole career. Um, I'm 45 now, but, uh, I'm kind of, a, I, I don't, I don't have any love for the, the, the film industry as a whole or, or, you know, Hollywood. Um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of excited by, you know, the democratization of, of everything going on film film wise especially if you're a documentary filmmaker like i am professionally you don't you don't really have to be in la anymore which is that's kind of exciting i think sure um yeah i can only imagine what was already happening with all the streaming services and things like that that the coronavirus just sort of the 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 pivot that was made of i don't know you know, guys making the, the Daily Show and, you know, Bill Maher is in his driveway and that sort of shit where it's like, okay, well, then do we need, do we all need to be in the same space anymore? Correct. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've long kind of operated out. I've never really operated within that system. I have, you know, I have agents and managers and things, but outside of that, really, I just kind of do my own thing. I have, I have, an, you know, a, a group of investors that's, when the housing market crashed, oh, 12 years ago, they sort of all decided that it'd be a good idea to invest in, in crazy documentaries. And that's why I sort of, <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, I do my best to, to, uh, you know, keep, keep money flowing back to them. That's the key, you know, then they do the next one. But yeah, man, if you, I know you don't know a lot about me, but I, I, uh, I kind of got my start. I got my start. I was, I was in high school in Arizona and I senior in high school and I wrote a screenplay at the time it was called a single bound. I don't know why it nothing really to do with the uh, Superman or anything, but I, I sent it to one actor, an actor that I had kind of long admired. It's in, in retrospect, it's, it's kind of odd even, you know, how, how this happened or, or what, but it was, we sent it to an actor, Crispin Glover. I'm sh- are you familiar with Crispin Glover? Very familiar. Yeah, I, ju- I just uh, I heard you tell this story uh, in the link you sent me, and this is oh yeah, oh, yeah. Inc- yeah. I mean, please tell it. Please tell it for the, the record. I was wondering if I could get you to tell it again because that was, and I want to. I'm going to sort of dig a little deeper. So yeah, please. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, well, I'll uh, you know the. I convinced the, my co-writer, who's also a high school student and friend. Um, to send it to an actor, we sent it to his. We found out who his representatives were, and and trust me when I say this, we we knew we didn't know jack shit about anything. I was nobody. We sent it into uh, Crispin's agents, and surprisingly, they responded, and they 
you know, it's common in the in that industry where you for an actor to read a piece that you write, you have to make a monetary offer of some kind. So his agent said, Hey, are you making our client a monetary offer? And I just on the spot, I, I said, um, yes, we are. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, we had no money. We weren't, uh, I don't know. It just it's something about it. It was, it was interesting. It, it felt, I don't know. It felt like it was inevitable or something, but we, uh, we sent the script over and he responded to it. He got back to me within a, short time called my family house my mother answered the phone um said uh, you know ryan crispin glover's on the phone for you and it was um and from there on we chatted we it was pretty quick he he asked if he could he said he wanted to make the film he wanted to direct it and he asked if um he we could do a little rewriting which that was done and he asked if um all the all the characters in the film could be portrayed by down syndrome actors so we you know within six seven months out of high school i was producing a film called what is it and it's you know it's sort of achieved some sort of cult status over the years i think have you have you, you have you seen the film or have you heard about what i've it? so i've never seen it much to my disappointment um i oh gosh i don't know uh you know, ten years ago, uh, probably more, probably five, fifteen years ago, as as sort of I'm becoming going down these internet rabbit holes. Uh, in two thousand five on, um, I did find clips from it, and um, of course, you know, like the trailer and stuff like that. I've watched um, a bunch of Crispin Glover clips around that time, and I have tried to sync up i know he travels with that show and i've tried to keep my eyes and ears open but it's never worked out that i've been able to see it but it's something that has always existed in the the back of my mind is this fantasy of something i'd i know is i'm i'm I'm, you know i love david winch and sort of weird avant-garde film for lack of a better term um yeah i feel like that's so it's just, it, just to say that that film would really like exist in this weird sort of liminal space for me. Um, so to when I heard your story there, um, and and just to be real, I I didn't. I've been working on this project, and so you sent me this email, and I was like, okay, I could listen to this podcast, but I just just saw like what like three or four projects that you worked on. I'm like, okay, cool. I didn't catch the Crispin Glover thing. And then uh, today, as I was getting ready for our show, I was like, all right, let me let's start listening to this other interview I'd done and see, you know, see what that was about. And uh, <laughs> I was just I was just blown away. So that's really incredible. Um, and that's an amazing start. And how do you feel like that um, sort of opened the door to being able to do all these other projects in the future? It definitely did. It will, you know, it, as an entree to kind of the, the film business, it was, I couldn't have asked for kind of a better one. Just having experienced the industry from all different sides since then, I, I know that Crispin Glover really is a very unique, one of a kind individual, as if that's a, you know, <laughs> as if we, <laughs> that was ever in question. Um, he, uh, you know, the interesting thing is that. And I really wasn't, uh, you know, I was 18. I wasn't really thinking on this exact level at the time. But 
Crispin's reasons for making what is it were kind of rooted in the the Edward Bernays book on propaganda and everything going on with the Crispin is just very he he was insistent and is still insistent on not taking any corporate money for any of his kind of art projects and and just to have that kind of you know like when you don't know shit when you I mean I you know I was into Werner Herzog movies and David Lynch at the time and I wasn't you know you know rock dumb or anything I just I wasn't uh, it was just such a cool way to make a film and be rooted in that is is even better the film is kind of polarizing it can uh, you know uh, offend some people but but generally it does not it's it's really kind of spurned on some some interesting conversation and i think crispin's fans understand where he's coming from but but yeah that that film sort of you know it was uh we shot we have you there's there's this band of um kids not kids but teens called the kids of whitney high uh, are you familiar with them at all i am not no okay yeah we, we we found a lot of our actors from there uh you know check out the kids of whitney high they do some really really incredible music uh most of the, the 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 band has down syndrome um they have a great song called insects they just kind of are crispin wanted to kind of he had uh, and i don't know how much this plays into it. i assume a lot but he had just done the film what's eating gilbert grape with leonardo dicaprio and i know he was you know while i think that that performance is genuinely uh regarded pretty highly and, and Chris, but I know agrees and, and, you know, loves Leo's performance. I think he, he kind of argued on that film with the director that that role should be played by someone who had Down syndrome. And uh, he lost like that actual battle. representation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he, he lost that battle, of course. And but um, I think that carried into our project. Um, but yeah, I'd be curious to see what you think of it. I've had I've heard a lot of things over the years and had. You know, a lot of I've heard a lot of unique things. I know you'd have a great take on it, though. But you should see. I'm going to let you know when it comes to your town, and I want you. I'll I'll get you with Crispin. You can kind of check out the film and let him know what you think. Oh, that'd be fantastic. I know. I mean, I don't know what's. Uh, do, are we living in a world where things are touring again? I don't know. Yeah, but, right. I know. I, I. You're so right, man. Yeah. Where? Tell me where. What? What kind of reality have we slipped into here? What is? Uh, what's going on? An amazing question. Um, you know, <clears throat> this is maybe something you can speak to. I was trying to find the actual uh, chart here. Maybe this is something you're aware of. Um, basically, uh, how can I explain this? There's a, a guy a who make who made this data set where he plugged every film that's come out in the last, you know. 60 years or whatever and tried to plug it into sort of grouping of genre and just create a little like map of what are the trends okay we can see this is the rise and fall of the western genre this is the rise and fall of this genre um and it becomes this this map that you can kind of trace all that information and what you, what's interesting to me is that you see there is this steady incline in the documentary format 
um, that really breaks out just at the turn of the millennium. Oh, interesting. And um, I mean, no, you're saying you're talking about just this this latest turn. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm saying I w- uh, I knew I had it saved on my computer somewhere, and I'm looking on a second hard drive. Just look it up. Um, one oh, thing, oh. you know, while you're looking yeah, up, say, uh, you know, one interesting thing I've been doing lately is it's just, it's, you know, it's interesting to look at films, and I mean narrative films, not not nonfiction films, but just, you know, your general narrative film. Even looking back at films, you know, 10 years ago, it, it seems like, you know, it's like looking at a dead culture. It's, you know, I used to do this a lot, look at old films from the 20s and 40s and, you know, even, you know, film European films, German films, and it's you know it's it's a unique gla- glance into a unique into a dead culture. Well, uh, oh, you just sent me something. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, but even you. you know, even looking at films ten years ago, it just it's starting to look, and I I think that goes into exactly what we're saying. But but go ahead. What were did you, you found this list? I found the chart. Yeah, and this is just like a screenshot of one. If you if this does anything for you you can actually go to this guy's site and it is a completely interactive data set you can like click through and actually you know expand and see what films um are are out that year and all that sort of stuff it's 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 a really interesting data set um but you if you can just click on that screenshot you can get a sense of how documentary stands out in this space interesting are you seeing that image I'm pulling it up right now. Gotcha. Interesting. So, you know, this this can tell you a lot of, I mean, again, just to, for, for me, this is your question, going back to your question, like, what is this, what timeline are we in? For me, this could be seen as a kind of, um, you know, an industry uh, market research. Oh, what's hot right now? But I'm not looking at it that way. I'm looking at this as more of like a, what does this say about the zeitgeist in any given moment, right? Like, why is it that? Why, why is it that you know a, a war film? You know, you, you could see that spike in war films. You can see a spike in all these things. But where are we at? Where what? Where we're at right now is we see this huge increase, huge, huge increase in documentary genre, but also thrillers and horrors. And there's something about facing a very you know um i don't know facing reality um in this very different way is what that says to me and this doesn't even include conversations of like quote-unquote reality television and stuff like that so i feel like there is something that is i don't know this postmodern post postmodern era of becoming uh immersed in our media and and it reflecting back on us um it's so interesting because yeah i and i'm i'm totally aware of uh you know i've i look back on my own career and i i sort of right when i made the transition from working with crispin into i'd always i've always seen myself as a as a documentarian even before you know i, I dabble in in narrative film and i've produced a couple and directed one that's coming out pretty soon but um called queens of country but it's funny i call in like a ninth my very the very first article on me i i spoke and this is before like survivor even hit i was talking about the next wave was going to be uh 
reality television and documentary film, nonfiction programming. It doesn't, it, and, and obviously we can see that in this gentleman's chart. I, I do wonder, it doesn't feel like that right now. I mean, yes, we have the, you know, some of these cultural touchstones like the Tiger King, everyone's talking about, it's like water coolers, you know, talk almost. But does this feel like a time where we're sort of living in a, it doesn't, it almost seems like very non-reality based. I don't know. What do, sure. what do you Well, I think, um, so uh, I would argue that we're getting an overdose of reality. So mm. our, we, don't, we don't need to go to a documentary so much anymore or even, a you know, again, reality television. That, that was always the, pretty much since its start, has been the joke of, oh, it's, it's, it's not real. Um, but we're getting, through social media, I can see everybody I know is what they're eating for lunch and, you know, their, their vacation photos. And I'm sort of, there is this, it's all, of course, filtered, just as the reality television isn't really reality and a documentary, even the, the best documentary is an approximation of reality. Of um, but uh, I do feel like, that's what I'm saying. I feel almost like the, the this trend that you see is now would now break beyond this graph that I'm showing you and sort of saying, hey, now we have a president who is a performance artist in in a lot of ways. Um, right. uh, we have, you know, I don't I don't mean to take this in a political direction, but just to say like th there is a our whole our whole media environment that we interact with on a daily basis is based on this reality and distorted reality uh, lens. I don't I don't think that there's really a separation of this graph and what we're experiencing, except for where somewhere in there that fourth wall really just comes crumbling down. Um, but I think this graph would sort of show where we s started to go in that direction. And, and of course, as I'm saying, like if you wanted to take this in a sort of um, literature uh, type conversation is you would have these ideas of what, what happens in a postmodern uh, cultural society where we're no longer talking in terms of a, a God or, a, or things like that. We're talking in terms of the, the writer, the author, the, you know, just there's been this slew of popular culture ideas of that we're living in a simulation or all you know anything from the matrix to you know what is that a uh, goofy stranger than fiction and all that sort of stuff mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's yeah i think yeah you're absolutely right um i mean <clears throat> where do you think uh where do you think art goes from here i mean you're an artist do you, it it seems i don't know it's have you been particularly inspired lately to do and i'm talking about work kind of outside of you know maybe the sync stuff is going crazy i'm i'm assuming right that's like off the charts i mean i want i i am this uh <laughs> let's be real here i the sync stuff this this project is my sort of getting the fuck out of it uh, or trying at least trying for a little, taking a taking a real break again I took a break um, for about 2016. Um, I took a I took a 
serious, serious break from all this. And just the last year or so, I've been re-engaging with it. And it's something I can't, I can only do in small doses at this point. And I think part of that is this, I don't know, this insane sort of uh, conspiracy culture has become mainstream and has become memeified. So mm-hmm. we're in a situation where you can... Uh, I, I just to say I don't know where you stand on this sort of stuff, but I, uh, I, in the I didn't finish the the episode of that podcast you sent me, but you know there were there's something like that Wayfair idea, right? Of like okay, selling children through a, a website. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that, from a mainstream perspective, it was a one one and a half day news cycle story mm-hmm. and for my sort of sync idea what the way i take that is we experienced pizza gate you know compressed and condensed down to mm-hmm. 36 hours right and it's this sort of terence mckenna-esque like compression of time um but what what does that do what is that i don't i don't think that's healthy for anybody, if it's real, then you're not helping these victims, and if it's false, then you're just swimming and sort of celebrating the horror. Again, going go to this idea of like staring in abject horror, the abyss of, of what fucked up world we're living in, um, sort of splashing around and playing in the shit of it. Uh, I don't, I don't know that I see. Maybe I think I'm, I guess I'm pretty, I have a bleak outlook on a sort of overall societal uh, trend as far as what, what kind of art can be made in that. Um, I think that's, that's ultimately where art is a salvation for for me, at least as someone who sees a sort of overall bleak uh, affair. That's when I retreat and, and embrace artwork. And I think the sync stuff has become so real and is so reality bending and is so, um, unfortunately twisted into this mainstream conspiracy hysteria. And I, and I, I want to be just careful how I say that is I am, I consider myself a conspiracy theorist in certain ways. I'm certainly very interested. You know, I've researched the shit out of JFK and 9-11 and all those things where it's like that's um, I'm so open to all these things. I just again, it's the way in which information is distributed and filtered. I'm exactly I'm exactly on board with what you're saying. So, so continue. Yeah. Cool. I mean, I just, yeah, I, like, I don't want to, uh, I know, uh, unfortunately, all this sort of stuff is triggering, right? Where it's, uh, people want you to be on board with whatever their conspiracy is at the moment. And um, I just, I don't think it's a healthy situation. I don't think anyone is actually researching anything anymore. It's literally, what is, if it's a topic um, you have a few sources that you trust for whatever reason, and you mentioned Bernays. I think this is a big part of it. But to say we're, we get we have a few trusted information sources, whether that's 
if you're a guy who trusts the New York Times or you're a guy who trusts Alex Jones, either way, you're just getting your information source and whatever they tell you, that's your reality tunnel. And I think uh, I don't see... I don't see people willing or interested in breaking out of any of those reality tunnels. And I feel like the way in which I've been engaging with this from a real perspective, from a sync perspective, is so tainted by that conspiracy. And again, this memified conspiracy world where we're not, we're not, when, when the Wayfair thing happened, you know, I see. If I go on Facebook that day and I see some people saying, holy shit, and then people who aren't even into conspiracies. So it's like, oh, uh, <laughs> this is sort of a, another trend, another avenue. But same was like, everyone is a conspiracy theorist now. Whereas 15 years ago, I was the crazy one for talking about 9-11. Now, random friends on Facebook can be like, holy shit, did you see about this Wayfair story? But they're not invested in it they're not totally. seeking justice or even truth it's just it, a it's a thing coming through passing through and i feel like that's dangerous on all sides all sides of that is super dangerous you're so right it feels like we're living in a world where you know i and by the way your your history aligns with my own but it feels like we're we're living in a world where all conspiracies theories have come true but yet kind of no one is yeah they just exist as just fodder for for the you know for the mill or something i don't know it just it no one's doing anything about it there's no justice being sought it's and it's like you know even my 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 grandmother the other day literally was talking to me about you know about the wayfair thing um by the way on the on you know i i'm i i didn't weigh in either way on wayfair the the previous podcast I did, which I I enjoy that podcast a lot, but um, I was simply talking about uh, Kubrick's use of human furniture in Eyes Wide Shut that a lot of people don't hadn't even been aware of, uh, and the whole Wayfair furniture thing. So, but I have no idea whether the the Wayfair thing is true. If it if it's at all true, of course it's it's god awful, and we should all be you know tearing down. We shall be joining the, uh, the rioters in Portland, I guess. But you know, well, we're uh, in a we're in a moment where there's there's there, where there's an overwhelm of outrage, right? Where if I if I again again, how, how does this not come to a head in some way? Because either we all just have our fucking mental breakdown, or we burn it all down, or something. It's um, there was a, a Dave Chappelle special he did a few years ago uh where he talks about um oh he's like you know i basically one day we're upset about this the next day this next day this and he's like and he makes the point it's not that these are like things not to be upset about it's just like how do you keep track how do you focus how do you so if i go back 15 years i could say hey there was a point where Oh, 9 an inside job. And we all get a, on the same page, let's say, and we go, great, now let's try and put George Bush and Dick Cheney in prison and focus on that and whatever it is. And within a few years, it's suddenly like, ah, oh, but what about the Freemasons? What about the Illuminati? What about these guys? Okay, and you sort of branch out, branch out. Oh, what if there was no airplanes? What if there was this? The conspiracy itself breaks down. The truth breaks down. Suddenly there's 
a whole other world of conspiracies out there and that that focus is no longer solidified and if i tried to seek justice for everything i was outraged by on a daily basis i wouldn't have time to eat or breathe or shit or anything like i'm we live in a moment where i'm constantly outraged i could see videos of police beating people i can see evidence of children being trafficked i can see it's like where do i even begin and i think there is um maybe this is a, a conspiracy theory in itself but i feel like um there's something about fanning these flames because it either creates hopelessness or chaos and either of those things are um great methods of control and uh even if it's not intentional again it's sort of having that effect so i was just going to say yeah just in hearing you know and kind of listening to us have this conversation it it feels orchestrated it has to be um if and if it's not it's uh, you know a byproduct that is you know something that that is desirable for the powers that be i guess you'd say but you know i was going to say going back to a previous point you know there has to be like the ultimate sync film from Alan Abadessa. I mean, you have to make that film, my friend. (laughs) I don't know what that would be, but yeah. Um, Well, so, sorry, you know, I I went on this sort of rant about reality is to, is to say you asked what, what is, what is artwork and what's the future of artwork. And for me, at least for me personally, my intention is to go back into some fiction. um, And I think just, even to take some control uh, and sort of ground myself. So it is my intention once I finish this film to work. I have this other project lined up and I, I just want to do some fiction work for a little while. And um, that, that of course doesn't mean I will stop being, I will still be an active participant in, in my, in society and reality. And so it's not like all this, those problems go away. I just mean that, uh, I don't know, I can only stick my finger in the electric socket of this insane moment of history for so long at a time. <laughs> uh, I, need, I, I feel like I need to like step back a little bit and be like, okay, ground myself in, um, I don't yeah. know, these, these, the, the sort of archetypes and explorations that are, I, I miss, so I've, I've done nonfiction writing and fiction writing and you, I'm sure, as a documentarian, you get this of every sentence I want to put down on the page, I will have to then, you know, verify, okay, I really want to make sure this is true before I say it. Let me, I know I've done my research, but if I'm going to say this line, let me just make sure I've got my five backup sources or whatever. And I miss the days of like, oh, I could just write freely and say, Joe walks to the store and is like, well, fuck it. If he does, if I say so, then it happened. You know, I totally get where you're coming from too. I, I get, I feel the same way. I mean, you know, it's, um, I don't know what the next step is. It's, it's, I could just, I guess, keep plotting, you know, keep chugging along with what I'm doing. I tend to make films on interesting people who have, you know, interesting ideas. But my, my first big documentary was on the kind of the Godfather, the synthesizer, Bob Moog. I'm sure you're familiar with him, the Moog synthesizer. Yeah, I'm gonna, I lived um, for about a year and a half in Nashville, North Carolina, right across the street from the uh, oh, factory man. there. Yeah, I've, I was there. I mean, I, we spent a lot of time there in Nashville. 
yeah, it was, we really enjoyed shooting there with Bob and, um, you know, he, Bob passed, he died kind of right as soon as we were done filming. Um, but he was kind of a, you know, a second figure in my life that was extremely influential. And Bob, Bob's, you know, talks, he speaks in our film about how, you know, how he feels ideas are floating around out there and you kind of tune in and grab them and stuff. And, and a lot of that's introductory stuff. But for, for me as a young filmmaker, it was, it was really cool to work with him. And he's a true genius. And, and um, it was, I hope our film does him some justice. But um, you also did a film called The Heart is a Drum Machine. So I do did. you have, and you also did something with um, Maynard. So is, is your interest in sort of a more electronic music? Is that a, a sort of? Or just, yeah, just music in general, I'd say. Okay. Um, I, I, I'm not a musician, but uh, I've, I've just always been a huge admirer of, of musicians and always worked in me. I, I also worked, I produced the Death Clock album, um, you know, the, the, the cartoon on uh, Adult Swim, um, brilliant cartoon. I don't think it's no longer, but um, I, I, yeah, I love music, man. And, and Hard as a Drum Machine, we took kind of 100 artists from across all genres of music and uh, you know everything's you know kind of had them speaking you know kind of mystically about music i just watched this thing from have you been follow oh but go, let's let's stay on track but i want to know if you oh no hey man just go for it say, say what you want to say yeah okay have you uh do you follow chris knowles's uh liz fraser stuff uh so just to say i i did i'm very aware of um, I'm very aware of the topic. I can't, I have not paid attention to Knowles' stuff in the last, I don't know, few, few years, but that's just because I've, I think the way I'm consuming media and my, my, my living situation is so drastically different than it was. I'm just not as plugged in as I was to that world. Um, but I'm very, I, I was a big, uh, close follower of Knowles' work leading up to that and i um i'm very very aware i remember actually the day uh i've been i'm tracking all this sort of king kill mythology this is really my go-to uh motif that sort of fascinates me and me too i, yeah. I think it was uh i hope i'm getting this right it was uh, the night of the that the impeachment was announced uh, whether it was the the impeachment proceedings or um, the actual charges being filed against Trump was the night that Liz Frazier did this uh, massive attack reunion in D.C. I, and, I, I and I literally like I mess I just I saw uh, I was so I, I was working as a bartender and I'm like literally at the bar and I have some guys who had just come from the show in D.C. talking to me about it. And I'm like, wait a second, wait a second, you, you know, and I, I just grab my phone and message Knowles right away. I'm like, okay, what, what's going on here? <laughs> it's interesting, yeah. And then she, she, you know, she played Radio City Music Hall with Massive Attack again, and, and she was touring along with. What's so interesting is she was touring along with these. Uh, there's a filmmaker, Adam Curtis, out of the UK. Really interesting documentary filmmaker. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He was putting together all these, you know, apocalyptic. Uh, imagery to the the music and just really loud really in your face you know rioting and police brutality stuff and all i mean 
talk about a harbinger of what's what's to come I mean, what has come it's it's pretty incredible chris took a bunch of video from it and it it, it really called out what was to take place just a few months later i see and now uh i know they just did that like they were calling it like a video ep or something there's like three songs that were just released oh did they really i didn't see that yet okay i'll check that for sure um it's probably that material from Adam Curtis, I'm sure. I think, um, let's see. Um, um, they did three different, it was three songs. It is someone speaking throughout. Um, mm-hmm. And one is someone talking about, um, uh, oh, Jesus. Um, like maybe like the climate crisis and one is talking about um, a financial crisis and one is talking so on, so on. So there's it's three different pieces. Each has its own video work. Each has its own subject matter. Um, but they're like really specifically uh, content heavy in the sense of it's less about the music and more about the information. My like pretension, my pretension bells are, are ringing, you know, but it's like, uh, I don't know, it, everything in context, you know, given the Noel stuff, it it plays out a little differently. I don't know. But yeah. when bands sort of go in that direction, I sort of, I don't know, the art sort of falls away. You know what I mean? Yeah, I feel like there'd be a way to write write a song about it. <laughs> um, yeah. But that, that's that's my that's my own pretension of telling someone how to make their art. So I, I don't you know, it's if it gets you know in one way if it gets information out there, then they're doing a great service. Um, but I do feel like it's again it's more as a, an avenue for information than it is an avenue for. I don't, you know, the muses, I feel myself, even with the current project I'm working on, it's so, so real. Again, it's kicking my ass. I feel almost like uh, the film Amadeus, where it's like working on the really dark material just drains the life out of me. Um, But for (laughs) your stuff is brilliant, man. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's just thinking on this level that most people will we'll never get to but it's calling out at the same time it's calling out so many things that are just right there that we should be seeing you know but it's it's making these connecting these dots that should be connected for everyone i mean i, I don't know what it, it, your latest one is on and i can't wait to find out but i've i've followed all the others and thank you yeah um, but you know it's like it's with art i mean there's a there's a long wonderful history of politically oriented arts and that's that's a beautiful thing and like you know we're all into to positive outcomes for those kinds of things or whatever but there also is this other school of art that maybe i always have one foot in where it's like you never want to you never want to be too on the nose with it you know i don't know i sort of come from that school even if i'm having some even with my films yes we'll have i'll have maynard um you know, give his opinion on things and I'll we guide him and, and everything. And but he has his own things he wants to talk about too. But you never want, you know, it's kind of nice that I like films that never kind of hit you over the head. That's, that's really important. I think with documentaries, we're, we're, we're used to 
Um, and and I and I do. By the way, I do view you and your work in a totally different category. But then, I like a Michael Moore, where you kind of know where the filmmaker's coming from from moment one, and you feel the exact same way at, at when the film credits roll. You know, um, you're mm. you're doing something that's mystical and and out of this world, and and everything's kind of coming in into your mind and these connections are being made and you're going, oh, wow. And you have a totally new view about certain things when you leave. That's a different kind of art I'm, I'm talking about. But um, this this art that, and I don't know about Massive Attack. Massive Attack's cool, you know. I, I've, I've, I've enjoyed them uh, more than I've enjoyed Muse over the years, you know. And and with the, with the whole idea of the, you know, I think his name is Robert, who, the guy in Massive Attack who probably, you know, is doing graffiti all over the world same time, you know, for those who <laughs> talking about, you know, so that, that adds a whole other thing to that band. Is that, is that, do you, do you believe that one, by the way? I, 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 I'm certainly open to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's Banksy and massive attack. I mean, probably right. I mean, someone kind of correlated all the massive attack stops with where the, where Banksy was putting out his, his new, um, his, his newest and latest. So it, it, that seems pretty compelling. Uh, yeah, I've seen that, and I'm certainly open to it. Again, I don't, I don't, I don't think I'm, uh, I don't have an opinion on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm, yeah, exa- I, I get, I get, I get where you're uh, coming from. That is like to say, hey, these are major, um, I don't know, cultural touchstones. I don't know if they're as, uh, no pun intended, if they're as plugged in as they once were in the sense of. I mean, at this point, a 16-year-old a with a TikTok could have more of a cultural reach than Banksy. Right. Um, you know, I mean, that, that, that's, that's interesting, yeah, yeah. It's that's like crazy. We, we focus on these huge artists and be like, well, what, what, what? I, again, we're, we live in this world where, um, and that's what I get, that like sort of, documentary space is well now that that teenager can reach millions and millions of people and and influence them in a way that we're just not not prepared for um or not expecting so i uh, go out and do what i normally do in my career which is uh, every one of my films i kind of i kind of tour them around and you know i sort of learned that off of of crispin who still to this day tours are the first film what is it we did together but with these docs you know it's so like you say it's even if if you like say do a netflix deal and premiere on netflix and you get a little buzz i mean everything seems like it's over uh, you know mm-hmm. with our news cycle so i don't know what i'm fighting against it's probably old school i can't even do it right now in the current climate but i mean at least touring around you feel like you're sort of you know meeting people connecting with people ideas are being connected um but oh that sounds incredible and just to say if i may just yeah i have to imagine by touring a, something is not only getting someone who's interested but by actually the physicality and the intimacy of something like that is to say hey you're actually going to pay attention if if you're watching this documentary for an hour and a half Exactly. You're actually going to pay attention and engage with the information in a way that's not like, you know, let's be real. Holy shit, a new, three new Massive Attack, you know, songs. 
where they they were just somewhat disappointing, but also the way in which I took them in was disappointing. I'm sitting on, you know, I was on my phone. I'm like, oh, cool. Let me hit play and hear that. You know, this is not the proper way to take in. Um, I'm an old enough guy that it's like, I remember buying the album, you know, on the bus ride home. I'm looking through the liner notes and I'm getting ready and I'm reading through the lyrics and the photos and I'm getting into this headspace and then I go home and I listen to the thing and that's how you listen to a, an album. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that, that is the way. And, and who's doing that anymore? Who's able to do it? It's, it's sad. Who's able to do it, yeah. But yeah, that's, that's, you, you hit the nail on the head. That, that's why we have toured all of our films around and, and, and they ultimately, you know, play on network too. We've, we've played, I've had several films play on Showtime and PBS, a couple of films, but it's still, I, I, I enjoy more just setting out, you know, setting aside a couple month, you know, time period and just roll around the country, film festivals and just four walling. We, we four walled as, as much as we've done festivals. Cause you actually more focus on the film that way. And just having the filmmakers there. I always appreciated it when I was younger and coming up and there, there'd be a filmmaker come to, uh, you know, in my case, Arizona State University area, there's a there's an art theater, and I'd always go down and check it out, and they'd speak after you. You do engage in a in a much more sub- substantial way than just like that, especially now, and it's it's a whole new world anyway. If you how much how many how you know, we oftentimes watch documentaries even on as they roll by on Netflix or whatever, and we're not even fully engaged there. So what are yeah? It's it's a weird time, man. It's definitely a weird time. I'm glad, like, I don't know what else is sort of returning to your original question of, like, what art do you make in this time is to say, you know, I, I struggle with that to a certain extent, but I also know that it's, it is the thing that feels the most real to me is when I'm creating any of these things. So I, um, maybe we're living in different space. You have to answer to an investor somewhat. Um, I don't know. My, my investors are, yeah, that's the whole thing is I, you know, again, I have my hearken back to when I was coming up, I made my first couple of films without any oversight by financial people. And that was at Crispin's insistence. And I've sort of carried, carried that throughout my career, but I, I have a bunch of investors that I keep happy you know, they don't have any say over any subject. Sure. Matter. Oh, that's yeah. Well, that's sorry. And just to say, that's not that's. No, um, I mean, people do, you're right. Most most filmmakers, you know, don't have that the luxury of being able to kind of <laughs> yeah. make what they want. It's it's very rare. I know mine. I'm sure has a lot to do with you know some of my best friends have been you know investing in my films. Jason Stahl is one. He's my very best friend. He's invested in most of my films so it's it's a different deal but i can't imagine making a film where you have to kind of oh boy you know that gets that gets a little you know get a little that gets scary i think being in this weird internet and particularly this kind of this overlap with the conspiracy culture i found that really uncomfortable because yeah uh the the final video i'm making now is to say that there were very specific sort of I don't know, um, things that you had to go along with. And I, so, so anyway, I just immense respect. And, um, you know, if you're able to just make what you want to make without having to, to answer anyone, that's fantastic because, uh, 
I've just seen how poorly that goes. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I will say this: that of course I'm I'm comfortable. My family and I are comfortable. We're we're not loaded. You know, we're not butt loaded. And that was there were certain decisions made in early in my career where I could have gone that way. Um, right. It's what you're describing right now that taking place within conspiracy culture. That's long happened outside of conspiracy culture. Many filmmakers have you know quote unquote sold their soul to the devil early and often, you know, but, uh, I don't know. It was more important to me at the, you know, and I'm not patting myself on the back either. I just, it just seemed more, uh, I could make more interesting films if you stayed a little bit smaller and my budgets aren't huge. I mean, they're in a couple hundred grand kind of zone for each film and, uh, you know, they turn a profit mostly and that's well, it. Can you tell me, maybe we can transition instead of talking in abstracts. Can you tell me a little bit about, yeah. I'm really curious, uh, so you have two JFK documentaries that I see here. One is King Kill 63 and one is Dallas and Wonderland. Can you speak to me yeah. about that? I, I know nothing about yeah. them and I'd love to know. Sure. Um, yeah. Okay. So King Kill 63 is a film um, that I kind of partnered with a gentleman. I greatly respect Joseph Green. We, we, um, this is right before everything kind of like uh, this kind of fell into this new reality that we're in right now and that that's the my honest assessment we started making this film and um i wanted and we even screened it once at the texas theater at the dallas uh, international film festival really fun being at the place where you know oswald was arrested and screening right there um that film though even back then i knew that it had to change and and that's what process it's going through right now it had to kind of expand out to even that film was made in a culture that feels dead to me now it's we're no longer there um that those will all be part of the film that is going to be that we're literally working on right now and coming out in a different thing dallas in wonderland was an interesting project uh it's a failed project it shouldn't have been failed we um we got all the way to the end with it but that was a i i wrote that script with adam parfrey i don't know if you if you know who he is, he ran Feral House Sure, Pratt. yeah, 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 I know that. Okay, yeah, I wrote I wrote a number of scripts with Adam. He was a, a great friend, um, one of my best friends. We wrote, uh, who's since passed, but we um, right kind of in the in the heyday of, of Feral House, we wrote a bunch of scripts and some based on project that that they ultimately were made, like Lords of Chaos. We we co-wrote that script that was taken on by another director and kind of changed, but. Uh, Adam and I and Hans Fjellestad wrote that script. But um, Dallas Wonderland was a project that was really about uh, a, uh, it, it, I mean, let's just, I'll put it this way. It had, it featured James Shelby Downard as, as a main character. Okay. Um, this film should have been made. We had, uh, we got all the way to the end. Literally it was, we had uh, Ben Kingsley attached to play Downard. Okay. Now tell me you don't want to see that, right? I want to. I want to see it. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, yeah. We had Ben Kingsley signed on to play James Shelby Downard. Nick Cage was coming on to play the lead, um, and we were. Can I ask what that role? What that? Uh, what character was the lead? Yeah, his name was his name was Mac uh, Temple, and he was the lead guy. He was a documentary filmmaker, and he was. Um, sort of hired by the powers that be to um, document the 50th anniversary of the JFK assassination. 
Gotcha. Okay, so uh, yeah. he would have been a, a fictitious character. Yeah, yeah, yes. Exactly. Gotcha. Okay, okay. It was sort of going to blend, you know, documentary and fiction, but it was mostly fiction. It was all scripted. Um, and if for those out there who know and enjoy Adam Parfrey's work, it, it's filled with all that stuff. I mean, this would have been the most esoteric, occult, sync film ever made, literally. You know, I, I truly believe that. And Nick was totally on board. He was going to bring his, you know, and this was right before his resurgence, really. Um, I mean, I've always loved Nick Cage and, you know, going way back. Yeah, he's his films right before he started making good ones again. He went through a little bad stretch, so to speak, but but he still rules, man. And and uh, you know, Mandy proves it. If that's not the one of the better films made in the last 10, 10 years, I don't know what is. But um, is that that new uh, Lovecraft uh, film? No, not that one. No, that I, I haven't seen that one. I, I I don't know about it. That's called Color Out of Space. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mandy, have you seen that? No, no, no. Oh man, you gotta see it. It's you will love it. It's uh, yeah, it's you just. Just take my word for it. Go see it. It's Nick Cage. Just some of the more. It's one of the most interesting films I've I've ever seen. You know. Okay. So, okay. Cool. But Nick was like totally down. I he was way into the JFK conspiracy stuff, and we were going deep with that stuff too. We weren't. Uh, you know, a lot of that material obviously is. And I I know you went deep on it. I I went. I spent five years going deep on it. But we got into the kind of more out stuff in there, you know, like the the, the Oswald doppelganger material and and uh, but this the ending it was it kind of you know it got, yeah I'll share with you the script I think you'd appreciate it just if you know yeah if you, being a lover of sync stuff and and yeah I'll share it with you but that film should have been made I uh, honestly it's just one of those things that happens in this industry uh, I was working with. Obviously, I had to go with a larger group of investors outside my comfort zone because um, the budget was, you know, fifteen million or something. I've made a four million dollar film. I've never made a a fifteen million dollar film. So we had to go out to um, a group of larger investors, and uh, you know, I, I couldn't even tell you what happened. There's so many little things you don't even quite know about, and they have to do with yeah. tax credits and this and that, and it's just part of the business. But we stayed true to our our material, and it would have been, you know, I I think I've been proud of it. If we, had we made it, I was set to direct, and we had our cast, and it just slipped away. It was weird that the 50th anniversary was coming up too fast. I think that was a lot of it. To mm -hmm. be honest. I can imagine, yeah. So can I ask when you said about um, King Kill '63? It sounds like you yeah. you said you were sort of reimagining that currently is that is that what you're that's exactly what's going on yeah and it's you know it's you know part of the thing i wanted to uh to chat with you about at some future time in the next you know week or so but sure. um yeah do you want to promote that on a on a podcast or you want to hold that for a private conversation i mean i think you know everything that's been set up to now i think I, we probably don't you know uh it's fine with me, but, but maybe not even, I don't, I don't even, it doesn't bother me if it's, if it's out there, what I've, I haven't said anything really about it. So, but I think if, but yeah, in general, we should hold it. It is a film that was released and it is being changed. So I don't, maybe don't mind that that comes out because it's going to be revamped. I mean, outside of a, a small part that's on the, the Kennedy stuff and an epic interview with Oliver Stone. That's like a three hour long interview where he really got, he went deep on sync stuff and I mean, all kinds of stuff he hasn't talked about anywhere else. Wow, uh, okay. 
we're really going in the sync direction. And, you know, I, I just think like if to plan out a meeting, you know, between the three of us, um, I got to see when I can get out there. But, um, uh, yeah, and I don't know exactly what's going on in your neck of the woods with, with the whole COVID stuff, but nothing's closed down, right? Like people. Correct. Yeah. Actually we're, uh, I mean, I've been taking it seriously. Um, and, uh, I mean, just to say, so again, I said, I mean, I was working as a bartender. I, um, we, we closed, I guess it was a month ago. Um, they were you know, reopening things and we're doing all this sort of stuff. And um, my bar called me and okay, you know, we're going to be reopening. Cool. And I went back to work and we were there. I was there for two weeks before a coworker got it. Oh, no. Someone tested positive and we closed again. And they have since, you know, re- only it was only the one person got it. Luckily, we all, you know, I, I basically spent two weeks worried you know, I went and you know, everyone had to go get tested and, and all that sort of shit. Um, luckily, we're, I'm, I didn't get it and everyone's fine. But if, if we can't make it two weeks without someone getting it, it's like so basically my plan has been uh, to finish this final episode of this series um, and which I actually am, I don't know, seven to ten days away from being my 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 hope if I'm real with you, my hope is to have it out actually August 9th. Um, I don't think, but anyway, seven to ten days is a more realistic mm-hmm. time frame. Yep. And uh, then I'll fix. Right now, you're editing it right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm in the final stretch, and uh, and then I'm, and then I'll sort of figure out what I'm doing from there. But just to say, as far as like the coronavirus situation is that it's things are i think kind of how they are uh, around the country is that there's these little flashes and nothing's there's no huge outbreak and there's no huge restrictions but it's also it's clearly not contained and um it's so odd i you know being in arizona it's my wife just read to me from the the newspaper today that you know 24 percent of people being tested in arizona right now are testing positive and it's, uh, you know, allegedly exploding here like like nowhere else in the country. Of course, I, I don't know one person who has it. I don't I, I haven't seen any signs of it anywhere. It's it's just it's an odd thing. That's that's part of this unreality thing going on. We keep hearing these things and yet. Clearly, no one around anywhere I go is affected by this. It's It's strange, man. I don't know. Yeah, and that's 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 the funny thing. So right, so I have to say, as a guy who's, you know, fairly, again, I I, I think of myself as a sync guy, not a conspiracy guy. Yeah, I do too. Right? Yeah, that's but yeah. but I am, <laughs> you know, uh, it's there's there's uh, a lot of overlap there. Of course, and um, so. I'm fully aware of all the sort of, I don't know, conspiracy theories around COVID and even just or sort of like the disbelief uh, and the all, all these sorts of things. And I have to say, I, I get that. And also, whereas people, a lot of people are saying, I don't know anyone who would ever, I do. And I, you know, like, so my 
my mother, who works for her, um, had two co-workers die wow. before they were like, like, here's a thing. So, you know, this, the, the other side of the conspiracy here, to me, there's a, there's a conspiracy for mega corporate powers to keep this fucking quiet <laughs> is that, so my mother, her, she, who has now been transferred out of that space, mind you, but her desk was right next to this, the, the manager's office. And she hears on the phone, the manager talking about, oh shit, okay, someone who was here. Do you remember, do you remember there was uh, the earliest cases, there was this guy in Westchester uh, who went to like um, a synagogue and got like a yeah, bunch of sick. I do okay. remember that, yeah. All right. <coughs> Excuse me. Bless you. So, thank you. That guy's wife was in my mom's office a few days before. Wow. And the bosses are on the phone and they're talking about what do we do and how do we handle this situation and all these sorts of things. And my mom is so now she's fully aware that, okay, we've all been exposed. Yes. Two things. One is she kept waiting for them to tell everyone. She's like, well, I'm sure they're going to make an announcement, blah, blah, blah. They never made a fucking announcement. Wow. Right? Uh, they never fucking told anyone. The other thing is that you want to talk about human furniture. They made, had to make a decision. What do we do about we know this? We know all the rooms this person was in and all this sort of stuff. And they just call their regular cleaning lady. Oh, man. Like, well, have her go in there. The, uh, the conversation that the person says is, well, I don't want to go in there. And who do we send to clean it up? So they just call the fucking cleaning lady. And like, hey, can you just kind of clean, the, you know, clean around in here? It's, you know, it's, it's a little bit dirty oh, in there. Can you make sure you have no suits or anything? Just straight. Right. Exactly. So it's okay to put this, you know, poor minority at risk. You you stay in your fucking office. You fucking take off. Send send the cleaning lady in to fucking handle it. And who cares? And like, th this is the world. This is my perspective on this sort of thing. It's like we are. <laughs> we don't. We don't. We we are, what what are we taking seriously? Whose whose health do we take seriously? And so. Um, just to say, I have a really different perspective. So, like, you know, is that she's waiting and she's freaking out. She's on the phone with me and she's like, what do I do? And I'm like, well, don't fucking go back to work. Like, just call, you call out sick or fucking something or demand they, you know, whatever. And she's, like, so close to retirement. And she's like, I just, I can't, you know, have that argument and all this sort of stuff. And um, anyway, so that's that's that. Then my, um, again, all, all my family's in New York. So, I mean, I know my uh Two people my brother worked with died. Uh, a guy that I worked with years ago on an art project, he didn't die from it, but he was uh, hospitalized for an extended period of time, seriously, seriously ill from it. Um, and then so when I'm here in Virginia and everyone's like, oh, it's just the flu and it's like it's not that big a deal. And I don't know. It's not something that keeps me up at night, but I got to say I... 
You're concerned. I, yep. I'm concerned. I'm concerned from all sides because the idea that like, hey, is it overblown? Certainly our media does that. You know, we see that with a fucking snowstorm. We see that with everything. We live, we live in an age where every, and, and again, the, the immediate reaction is, oh, here's a coronavirus. The, the reaction from politicians of how do we plunder as quickly as possible, both financially and robbing people of civil liberties and all this sort of stuff that is so real. And so I get the sort of overall skepticism and all that sort of stuff. But I also know that we, uh, it's, it reminds me of, so again, I'm from New York city after nine 11, right? So like on, on the day of nine 11, I, I was living in Queens. I'm across the river. I'm, I'm basically fine, but I could see, you know, I, what do I, I have some footage that I shot that day. It was really shitty footage, but you know, just sort of, here's the smoke coming across the river. I spent the next weeks of my life where it's like the whole city smelled, you know, burnt toxic fucking waste. Um, I, I had to go to multiple funerals. I know multiple people who worked there who had to flee that building, all that sort of stuff. And then 10 years later, I find myself in this conspiracy culture where people are like, well, have you ever considered that maybe it was like a hoax and that like it was all just like a staged event and nothing happened? And I'm like, nope, never considered that. You know why? (laughs) Because I fucking (laughs) saw it and smelled it and I went to the fucking funerals. Like, no, didn't, didn't. And there's something about this coronavirus which reminds me so much of 9-11 in the sense of the I think New York is so big a few thousand people dying in New York is just like it's like this like number and it's used as a can be used as a rallying cry or it could be used as a political thing one way or another but I sort of my reaction when this whole coronavirus thing was happening and everyone was like oh it's a, it's a hoax it's a hoax and I'm like it just gave me this like real flashback to okay so once again my city is fucking the sacrificial victim for a politicians who want to fleece it and a bunch of people who want to shrug it off I'm like well it didn't affect me so it can't be real and i'm like <laughs> i don't know man Oh yeah, and I'm and I'm just for the record, I'm certainly not saying that. I it's just I, the, know, I know. Yeah, I I totally uh, uh, can appreciate that uh, it it is affecting people. It's just weird not to something to be called a pandemic, at least in my hood, and and I don't see any evidence of it. But uh, that is not to say that it's not affecting people all over. It's um you know I did note that you know I found it pretty cruel that the. The feds just took away the six hundred dollar, uh, you know, unemployment uh, stimulus thing. Just didn't agree on that, and I, I'm not on unemployment, but it just having that yank that away from people. I think it's about to get real nasty. Uh, I, I agree. Think yeah, it's going to take a turn and be more of this rioting and all that, and maybe that's what's desired. I don't know. I mean, I, I gotta say, yeah, I mean. In a space where we can give, we live, we live in this really weird moment where 
I see more outrage about people getting unemployment than I see outrage about Trump bailing out cruise liners, you know, than I see outrage over politicians selling stocks, uh, you know, while while when they declare, oh, this is fine. Um, I, I, I feel like there is this politicized outrage and controlled and directed outrage for sure. Um, but I got to say, I mean, if uh, billionaires can keep profiting in this situation, if major corporations are doing just fine and we can't find the money to give to actual people, when those people burn down a fucking target, I'm not going to shed a tear. Um and I, yeah, I don't know. You know, that's a whole other uh, sort of direction. Um, but just to say, I, uh, I have again. I, I, ha- I think I have more sympathy at this point for um, see. I feel like this coronavirus situation has really laid bare what. And I mean, you know, it's not like a, a consp- it's not some Illuminati. It's it's literally just people of a certain, I don't know, social status, financial status, uh, corporate investment. I, I don't know what. You know, there's a sort of general overall sense of essential workers are not particularly something worth worrying about we we can as long as they keep the machinery working so i can sit home and you know and, and ride out this pandemic in peace or or uh, oh these people aren't aren't working let's take their unemployment away or all these sorts of situations for me just uh, again i don't want to make this a political thing is to say for me i'm much more sympathetic to outrage over those things than outrage over uh i don't know you know do I, should i do i have to wear a mask at the supermarket you know that's to me yeah. that's an inconvenience and it's whether it's effective or not can be debated but it's such a minor inconvenience yet we have massive protests and outrage over it and not a single fucking tear is shed over <laughs> thousands of people dead for, for for i don't know you know yeah no you're you're i think that yeah that just that goes into i don't know is is are, i did i see today that virginia is on the rise too or am i wrong uh we've been considered holding steady is what they consider us i, I think overall we're, we're okay um and again, it's just, it's uh, I I don't I don't know how to I don't know what to make of it. I, I think none of us can know the real extent, um, and hiding that information, whether that's CD, you know, one side of the conspiracy is that the CDC is is uh, blowing these numbers out of proportion, and then now we have where we oh, we're supposed to expect. Uh, Trump and my pillow guy to give us accurate numbers, you know, it's like, right. <laughs> I don't, 
I don't I don't necessarily trust either of those numbers. So what what can I do? <laughs> what can I do in that situation? That's um, the problem with this. The what the yeah. the kind of the era we're living in right now is that who do you trust really? You can't. We're living in a time when you can't really trust anything, and that's you know that's why it's so important to have these people that you can look to in these times like this. And it's certainly not our politicians. Oh yeah, for sure. Um. I don't know. So it's uh, that's why, like I said, for me, I'm in a space where I'm like, okay, uh, I think that this is a really it's a moment of transition for me, realizing that um, if if this is real in any way, no one is going to to try and help us. There's no politician coming to save us, whether it's financially. Or, um, or you know, intelligently, I, I don't, I don't want a vaccine. It's not, I'm not, you know, again, I'm, uh, I want to be, I don't know how deep you want to go here, but to say, like, I'm not, I don't have a specific sort of angle other than I really feel like the true colors have been shown of what, what are we worried about here? And it seems like, at the, for the most part, we're worried about the stock market you know we're worried about um we're worried about a broken window at target and um i gotta be real i don't i'm not concerned with either of those things are you concerned with taking a vaccine uh yeah i think so i think um so uh just to say you know before uh before I was even a conspiracy guy or a sink guy or a, even a bartender or anything. Years ago, I worked uh, for a job that I started when I was in, actually in high school. I worked my way through. I spent eight years working as a pharmacy technician. Um, I worked within the pharmaceutical industry. I worked for insurance companies, uh, did all sorts of, um, I worked like really specific, um, cancer and transplant meds. Um, and I left that industry because I realized how horrific the, the pharmaceutical industry here is. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's not, has nothing to do with health and it's, um, I feel like it does a lot more harm than good. Um, I remember like sitting down. So, you know, working, you would, you would have these regularly, um, someone who's going to school to be a pharmacist, you have to do your internship at, at an actual location. So it would be my job. Hey, today we've got this new intern starting here and they're going to, you know, kind of train them and all this sort of stuff. And I would, I at some point, I'd be, this is my activism was I would say to these kids, um, and kids, you know, I wasn't much older than them, but to say, uh, hey, can you grab your uh, your textbook for me? And like, you know, because they usually have their book bag with them. Like, hey, can you do me a favor? Can you grab me your, your textbook? I'm curious what you're reading. Okay, cool. Let's look at like that second page and what's looking that fine print. And who's the publisher of your textbook? Oh, Merck Pharmaceuticals wrote your textbook? Interesting. Okay, now let's come to this shelf. What products does Merck manufacture here? Don't you think it's interesting that like the people may, who sell the thing are telling you if you they have this illness you prescribe this medication? It's literally just a 
they're training you as salesmen for their products. They're not training you to be a health professional. Um, you Are know, you, I, uh, I'm forgetting his name, but there's a gentleman that's kind of making the rounds. He's a he's a he's a doctor. Um, I wish I remembered his name, but he's kind of speaking about, you know, how viruses are transferred. And if if it's, a, you know, if it's through, if it's an exosome situation where, you know, we don't truly person to person spread viruses. Are you familiar with that, doctor? Um, no, that doesn't ring a bell for me. I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with a lot of, there's a lot of, he's done a lot of, sort of, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, no, you go ahead. I was just saying, I'm, fam I'm familiar with that sort of line of thinking or that sort of material, but not, uh, there's no specific person that I'm thinking of. I just bring that up, that gentleman up, because he sort of made the rounds on, on various uh, podcasts and things. And on. But I was, yeah, I was wondering, you know, you having worked in, you know, as you did in, in the field, what do you, what do you, what do you make of that kind of, you know, thought process that viruses aren't, um, you know, they're not transferred in the way that we think they are or taught they are. I don't think I'm educated uh, enough to really comment on virology, but I can say that I, again, uh, I don't trust what, what I can say when I'm educated enough to say is that a major corporation and a billion and billion and billion and billion dollar industry that has proven that it has no interest in keeping us healthy or taking our health seriously isn't really what I want as the go-to answer for it. it was, let's say this is a real health crisis. You know, let's just skip like that part of the like, it's a hoax or it's overblown or whatever. Let's say, even if it's not this, let's say there is a real, you know, history has shown there are real fucking... <laughs> periods of history where we get sick right um let's say that's that's a real thing i don't want bill gates or merck or anybody like that being the ones to handle that situation because they're literally for-profit corporations that are you know it's it's not even like oh they're gonna put a microchip in us and you know this like that that sort of like I'm so uh, since in 2006, there was a doc. I, I covered this in my first episode, Hindsight 2020. There was a documentary that really made a big thing um, about microchips and vaccines and all this sort of stuff. It was called America Freedom to Fascism. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that you know, it's, it's interesting to see this material has still is still so prevalent. Um, just to say my concern is less about like, oh, the vaccine is going to chip you or or it's a Again, there's this real Christian angle of the the mark of the beast and all this sort of stuff. And this is so if you go back through the John Birch Society, uh, if you know your the history of conspiracy culture, it'll give you a better sense of where a lot of these ideas stem from. Um, but just to say that's while that's not my concern, um, I, I, I am concerned with government intrusion and and privacy and uh like the whole concept of that absolutely but to say the specificity of like oh they want to this is the the new world order master stroke is they want to push this vaccine to control the population motherfucker they already control the population 
right? Like that's right. this this isn't the thing they need is is a fucking chip in your arm. Let me tell you something. You you're holding it in your hand, you're fucking walking through it every day, you're logging onto it right now, you live and swim and breathe in it. It's they don't need they don't need that. Um but to say they can certainly make a t- fuck ton of money off it and they can certainly you know that's billions and billions and billions of dollars in profit if you can get a it's just uh, here's a, here's a here's an insight when i worked uh, i was working in a pharmacy uh, during the post 9/11 anthrax scare oh okay and uh, post 9/11 there was an anthrax scare and there was one medication that was considered as if you were to get anthrax this is the this is the drug you needed, and it was a very new and incredibly expensive antibiotic called Cipro. And I remember we all, it was back ordered, and every pharmacy ordered it and stocked up on it. And let me tell you something: four people died of anthrax, and that shit sat on our shelves for years. Okay, so we, you know, every pharmacy, you know, again living in New York, where there's a pharmacy on every fucking street corner, you, everyone invested thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars into this drug that was a huge boon for them then uh maybe it was like remember when h1n1 was i want to say it was like 2007 maybe 2008 um somewhere in there uh i was still working at that point i was still uh in the pharmaceutical industry and same situation they came out oh my god we have the swine flu epidemic and the drug of choice for that was this thing called Tamiflu, which is a garbage fucking drug. Um, it was known as a garbage fucking drug within the industry, but it became this thing of, oh my God, swine flu. The only thing you could really, that's going to be helpful at all is this drug called Tamiflu, which was super expensive. And guess who was invested in Tamiflu? Is Donald fucking Rumsfeld. Oh, wow. Okay. So what happens again? Every pharmacy has to stock up on this shit drug that was really expensive and wasn't selling. Like that's that's the other part of this is like there are just like probably in the film industry. It sounds weird to think of it this way, but in the pharmaceutical industry, there are, you know, there's a ton of marketing money that's spent. And if you can't get doctors to write prescriptions for that, it's a failed thing. If people don't like writing for it, if it's not selling, then you failed. You're you have a. You, you can have a blockbuster or you can have a fucking flop. It's the same idea, right? You, you're, if, you're, if you're not thinking in terms of health, if you're thinking in terms of financial success, um, Tamiflu was a fucking flop. And they turned that into this huge success with uh, H1N1 scare. Uh, so, oh. you know, those are some insights of to say, like, I don't, I don't trust any of these sorts of situations. I ha- I'm fully skeptical on all that sort of stuff. But I think what it comes down to is the other thing is that I would see these drugs come out. They're new and they're expensive and they're untested. And then suddenly we sell a ton of it. And then invariably within five, ten years, you see suddenly, oh, actually, now there's a lawsuit and we don't sell that drug anymore. And all these people got sick off it and so on and so on. And I have seen that enough literally working in the thing where it's like oh this is getting pulled off their shelves because a bunch of people got sick and all this sort of stuff that would be my reluctance for taking a rushed to market untested vaccine 
to make Bill Gates a bunch of money. It's less that I think he's the antichrist and wants to fucking microchip me for Satan. It's more that I think he wants to make a profit off a a drug that will be, eh, okay, maybe it works. Maybe some people die. What did Donald Trump say today? Yeah, people are dying. It is what it is. They don't care that they're making tons of fucking money. So, yeah. you know, that's, I think that's the, the thing that scares me when, we, when someone talks about vaccines and even like a forced vaccination, all that sort of stuff, or those sorts of questions is it's a way to make a massive amount of money uh, yes, it is an infringement of civil liberties. Yes, all these sorts of things. Um, and I ultimately feel like I don't want to be a guinea pig for something like that, just knowing that cycle of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, sorry, that was a bit long-winded, but that's, that is where I do feel confident in making a statement on that.